A British newspaper ran a contest with the winner receiving a substantial cash prize. The money went to the best answer to the following question. What is the shortest way to London? The winning answer was, the shortest way to London is with good company. (laughs) All long trips are more fun when you travel with friends. And the same is true on our journey through life. You can measure a man's wealth by adding up his friends. The trip is always sweeter with good company. Upon his retirement, journalist Henry Dorman, he wrote this, What counts most as I look back over the years are not my accomplishments, but rather the friends who worked with me as partners in these accomplishments. The funny thing about it all is that the quality and quantity of those accomplishments are fuzzy and unimportant in my mind, while the friendships remain crystal clear in my memory. And yet meaningful friendships don't just happen, do they? They have to be cultivated. It's been said some people make enemies instead of friends because it's less trouble. Lasting friendships do take effort and commitment. Here's a great description. Friendship is like putting on pantyhose. You get one foot in and then the other and you wiggle around and you tug until you get it right. Then pretty soon you say, I love these pantyhose. They fit. Ladies, if you want to know what maintaining a good friendship is all about, put on a pair of pantyhose. And men, if you want to know what maintaining a good friendship is like, watch your wife put on a pair of pantyhose. Paul demonstrates the value that he placed on friendship and his willingness to toil and work at these relationships in this letter to a friend named Philemon. Paul's letter reveals the qualities of a true friend. Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Now, there are Christians who have a ministry of writing letters to prisoners. Whereas the book of Philemon is a letter from a prisoner named Paul. He was in Rome. Paul was incarcerated for his faith, and he was waiting to stand trial before the Caesar Nero. Paul wrote three other letters during this lockup, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Along with Philemon, these four letters are appropriately called the prison epistles. The letters to Philemon and the Colossians were delivered by Paul's friend Tychicus. Paul writes to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. Note Paul's friendship with Philemon was forged in the midst of serving the Lord. To our beloved friend and fellow laborer. They'd grown close fighting spiritual battles side by side. You know they say military men, men who fought shoulder to shoulder. Who've shared a foxhole together. Who've been on the front lines together. They mold deep and endurable friendships. There's something about the rigors of combat that draw men together. They learn to communicate. They stay united. They trust each other. They cover each other's back. I believe one of the best ways to make friends is to get involved laboring for the Lord. When you share the joys and the jolts, both the joys and the jolts of ministry, with another person, you create special bonds between you and them. A camaraderie develops. Hey, call Paul and Philemon old army buddies. 
They served alongside each other in the Lord's army. They fought against the same spiritual enemies. This letter was also addressed to the beloved Aphia, probably Philemon's wife, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, who seems to be Philemon's son. And apparently the son followed in his father's footsteps, for he too was a fellow soldier of the faith. And to the church in your house. Philemon may have been a wealthy man. He probably had a large, spacious home. And apparently he had opened the doors of his house and offered his house as a meeting place for the church at Colossae. Philemon and his family were hospitable to the saints. You know, it's interesting that the church met in homes, the homes of its members, for its first 275 years of existence. There was no such thing as a church building. Our most successful period of growth and expansion occurred when fellowship of believers were based in homes. And I believe this is not just accidental. The informal, friendly, less threatening, relational aspect of a home, the atmosphere that's created in a home, is perfectly suited for reaching people with the gospel. Acts chapter 2 verses 46 and 47 describe the habits of the infant church in Jerusalem So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Notice though the combination. They met in the temple or the large corporate gathering. Yet they also met from house to house in the more intimate, more personal setting. Always remember, nowhere in the New Testament does the word church ever refer to a building. We, the people, are the church. Like the guy who complained to his pastor that the teenagers weren't wearing hats in the sanctuary. The pastor corrected him. No, the sanctuary is wearing hats. It's believers, not bricks, that make up a church. Oh, we all enjoy the comfort and the convenience of a church building. But always remember, the building is a luxury. The type of facility that we meet in is just that. It's to facilitate the fellowship that goes on among us. Jesus reiterated this in Matthew 18, verse 20. He said, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Always remember, a physical building is a convenience, not a requirement. And don't miss here the hospitality shown by Philemon and his family. They opened their home and their lives to a church. Oh, a Sunday school class met in Archippus' bedroom. And Aphia had to clean the house constantly. The ladies in the church used her kitchen for Sunday potlucks. And yet gladly this family opened up their home to the church. Hey, don't forget, Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain started in a home. Our home was our initial gathering ground, and it put a constant burden on my newlywed wife, Kathy. Folks were coming and going constantly, Bible studies and meetings and people hanging out. Kathy had to share her house with a church. And yet I have no doubt that in Kathy's mind and in Philemon's mind, his family included his church. The church in Colossae was one big extended family. I believe this kind of hospitality is especially vital in the age we're living in. An age where the extended family is practically non-existent. 
when modern mobility has broken down the family? You know, we used to be surrounded by mom and dad and grandpa and grandma and brothers and sisters and cousins and aunts and uncles. A family network provided support and encouragement and expertise. Today we miss out on that sort of community. And as a result, there are a lot of lonely people in the world who feel as if their lives don't really matter to anyone else. If you're single, or if you're newly wed, or if you are maybe a widower or a widow, hey, you need to plug into a church. We all need an extended family, a group to which we can belong, a place that we can call home. God didn't design us to live our lives alone. Isolation is never healthy. God wired human beings for community. He desires for us to live in meaningful fellowship with other people. In fact, did you know that hospitality is a spiritual gift? Usually when we think of these spiritual, supernatural gifts, we think of speaking in tongues and prophecy and healing and miracles. But in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9, there Peter adds hospitality to the list of spiritual gifts. He says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. When I think of the spiritual gift of hospitality, I always think of Aquila and Priscilla. Did you know that every time this couple gets mentioned in the New Testament, they have a church meeting in their home? We need people front and center in the church who have this supernatural knack for making other folks feel welcome and including them in their group. Well, Paul greets Philemon and his family. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers. Notice Paul prayed for his friends. In almost every letter Paul writes, he lets his friends know that he's been praying for them. The most important favor that you can ever do for a friend is to pray for that person. And the next most important favor you can do for them is letting them know that you're praying for them. That's something we don't often do. It's a great comfort to realize that you actually have a friend in this world who cares enough for you to pray to the other world for your help and for your support and for power in your life. Verse 5, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. Now Paul was a good friend to Philemon, but Philemon was quite a good friend himself. You know, it's one thing to display love and faith in the Lord. It's quite another to display love and faith toward other people. And yet this is what constitutes true friendship, is it not? You know, the, the whole idea of finding someone that you love enough to trust, that you're willing to risk trusting that person, someone who's willing to go out on a limb for you. That's real friendship. Hey, it's difficult to trust another human being. Friendship makes us vulnerable. Inevitably, inevitably we'll be disappointed. But the benefits of a real friend are worth the risk. Philemon and Paul, they had learned to trust each other in the midst of the battles that they'd fought together. They knew from first-hand experience that they could count on one another when the bullets started to fly. You remember Tonto's name for the Lone Ranger? Kimosabi. And do you know what it means? 
Anybody? Faithful friend. You got it. Faithful friend. The Lone Ranger and Tonto were in so many scrapes together over the years. Through all of the episodes, they learned to depend on each other. That's what true friends do. Verse 6. He says, And that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. Now here Paul prays for Philemon that other people will notice his godly life so that he'll become more effective in the sharing of the gospel. See, see, here's what's behind this thought. Paul knows that a life full of good works is always more impressive than a life full of, or a mouthful of good words. Sometimes we share our faith with someone and we just assume that they should listen. But first, we might need to earn the right to be heard. We might need to be a friend of that person. We might need to show them our love. Then they'll be more inclined to listen to our message. And he says, For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. I hope one day someone can say that of me. The hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. (laughs) Apparently Philemon was just a great guy. He was one of those kinds of people that was just, he was just a refreshing person to be around. Anyone close to Philemon, he benefited from his friendship. This man radiated with joy. He was a great encourager. You know, there are actually two types of people in the world. First are the folks who are enthusiastic about life. They love living. They're optimistic. They tend to look on the bright side of things. They're full of hope and faith. Every time you're around this kind of a person, you leave with your spiritual battery charged. You walk away blessed. You like to be around these kind of people. But that's not the only kind of people in the world. They're the opposite type. There are the spiritual leeches. The spiritual scavengers. They're like parasites. They feed off other people. They tend to drain your battery rather than recharge it. These folks are always pessimistic and complaining and negative. Invariably, they focus only on themselves or or what you're doing for me. And quite frankly, you hate to be around them. They walk around as if a cloud of gloom hangs over their head. You know, these are the people who need to learn the old adage, there is no danger of developing eye strain from looking on the bright side of things. Let me ask you tonight, what kind of a person are you? A light or a leech? What good did you do to be grouchy today? Did your surliness drive any trouble away? Did you cover more ground than you usually do because of the grouch you carried with you? If not, what's the use of a grouch or a frown? If it won't smooth a path or a grim trouble drown? If it doesn't assist you, it isn't worthwhile. Your work may be hard, but just do it and smile. It's been said a long face will do a lot to shorten your list of friends. I have no doubt Philemon had many friends because he was a good friend to have. Did you know you can make more friends in two months by being interested in other people than you can in 20 years trying to get other people interested in you? Once there was a man, he made scores of friends by changing one word in his vocabulary. For years, every time he heard someone make a comment, he would respond, Ah, baloney. Well, he just changed one word. He replaced baloney with amazing. 
Ah, amazing. (laughs) Now, whenever someone makes a comment, he says, amazing. And he has lots of friends. Did you know there's a vitamin that you can take to produce friends? B1. That's right. B1. I like the lady's confession. I went out to find a friend, but could not find one there. I went out to be a friend, and friends were everywhere. Verse 8, therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. Apparently, a divine appointment had taken place in Paul's prison cell in Rome. Has God ever booked you? To a divine appointment? You just happened to bump into a person you weren't expecting to see? It seemed accidental at the time, but later you realized that God had arranged the encounter? Has that ever happened to you? Without you being aware of His intervention, God orchestrated your path to cross with another person. You know, the rabbis have a saying, coincidence is not a kosher word. It is true. There are no accidents with God. Realize Onesimus had been Philemon's slave. And any time we think of slavery, we recoil in horror. The picture that sticks out in my mind is the cruel Egyptian taskmasters who built their pyramids by forcing the Hebrews to make bricks with no straw. That was slavery. Or you might think of defenseless Africans being packed onto crowded slave ships then taken to the new world by European traders and sold to white landowners. Plantation slavery was shockingly evil, totally reprehensible. Today we hear of evil men who make slaves out of young girls and employ them in the sex trade. And yet in some cultures, slavery was far more benevolent. In fact, in Hebrew society, slavery was an alternative to debtor's prison. Fall behind financially and you could work off your obligation. Rather than file bankruptcy, slavery was a means of digging out of an insurmountable hole. Philemon was not a vile, exploitive slave trader. That's not what he was. In fact, Paul commends him here for his love and his kindness and his faith. Philemon was just a Christian businessman helping a neighbor pay off his debt, helping him regain his financial freedom. But Onesimus, he had failed to appreciate Philemon's concern. He begrudged his servitude. He copped an attitude from day one. Onesimus could always be counted on to spit in the soup. He stole from his boss. He worked as little as he could. He was a rebel rouser and a troublemaker. Finally, he jumped ship and he ran away. Onesimus flew the coop. He wanted to get as far away as possible from everything that was familiar. And so, Onesimus, he boarded a boat and he sailed 900 miles from the country town of Colossae to the big city of Rome. There he could get lost in the crowd, or so he thought. But a strange chain of events occurred in Rome. God had booked a divine appointment for Onesimus. Imagine one night, a haughty Onesimus, he strolls into the local hooters. He's going to celebrate his newfound freedom. He downs one too many beers and makes a pass at the waitress whose boyfriend happens to be there. He ends up in a brawl. 
He gets arrested, tossed in jail. The next day, Onesimus, he wakes up. He's shaking off this enormous hangover when all of a sudden he opens his eyes and irony of all ironies, he is in the same prison cell as his master's buddy, Paul. Oh my. You heard of the little boy who made a coffee, made coffee one morning for his parents and as they finished up their, their brew, they noticed toy soldiers in the bottom of the cup. The parents asked their son why they, he had put toys in their coffee cup. And he answered, he said, Mom, Dad, the television says the best part of waking up is soldiers in your cup. <laughs> well, before the hungover Onesimus could drink a cup of coffee that morning, he had found a soldier in his cup. Paul was a soldier for Christ, known to everyone back in Colossae. This reminds me of the three college students. True story. They were at Key West Fantasy Festival. They bought some pot and they were, found a little secluded cluster of trees next to a building. Thinking that no one would see them, they smoked their stash. What they didn't realize is that they were sitting under the air conditioning intakes of the local police station. <laughs> Inside, the cops noticed this heavy marijuana fumes coming through the vents. The students were busted. They tried to hide from the authorities. Instead, they ran into them. And this was Onesimus. He tried to run from his responsibilities. Instead, he ran smack dab into them. You can imagine what happened next. God used his servant Paul to break this runaway's rebellious heart. By the end of the morning, Onesimus had seen his need for Jesus. And he'd opened up his heart to the gospel. As Paul put it in verse 10, Onesimus I have begotten while in my chains. Paul had a new son in the faith. Onesimus had been born again by the Spirit of God. That's why Paul now writes to his buddy Philemon and asks him to take back Onesimus as a brother. You see, what about Philemon? This story has a happy twist for Onesimus. But he was wrong to run. He had a debt to pay. Onesimus had an obligation to Philemon. In fact, his AWOL now made his situation worse. You see, under Roman law, a runaway slave was a wanted man. His master would register his name and his description with the authorities. If caught by the master, he could be sentenced, that slave could be sentenced to death. In fact, there's the record of one man who upon retrieving his slave, threw him into a pool of man-eating fish. Paul loved Onesimus. The thought of harm coming to him was tough for the apostle to swallow. And so Paul takes up a scroll and a quill, and he goes to bat for his newfound friend Onesimus. Paul appeals to Philemon to take him back. But notice how Paul makes his appeal. You know, a lot of life is about making appeals. Appeals to your boss, appeals to your kids, appeals to your husband, appeals to your wife. A lot of life is about making appeals. And it's interesting here how Paul makes his appeal. He doesn't use his authority. He doesn't try to push Philemon into anything. Instead, his appeal is based on love. You know, Dwight Eisenhower was explaining the two types of leadership. He put a string down on the tabletop. And he pushed one end of it. 
Yet his efforts to push the string failed to move it where he wanted. But then he pulled the string. And of course, he controlled it precisely. And people are like strings. Folks don't like to be pushed. They respond best to love. This is why Paul doesn't push Philemon. He pulls on his brother's heartstrings. Paul could have ordered Philemon. Notice he calls himself Paul the aged. I guess I had a birthday this past week. I turned double nickels. I guess I could now start calling myself Sandy the aged. That sounds impressive. Paul the aged. He was 30 years an apostle. Paul was a spiritual heavyweight, and yet his style wasn't pushy. He wanted Philemon to receive Onesimus, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. Be careful when you push your friend. Be careful when you start demanding. You never get far ordering people around. When you begin to push and force people, when you figure they owe you, when it's the old, you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back, that's not the Jesus style. Remember what Jesus said, and I'll paraphrase it for you. It's been said of old, eye for eye, a back scratch for a back scratch. You do me a favor because I did you a favor. But I say, if your favor is not returned, give it anyway. Turn the other cheek. Go the second mile. A true friend realizes, relies not on browbeating or on guilt trips or on pressure tactics or on paybacks. He relies on love. Let's learn to love with no strings attached. The best way to preserve a friendship is to avoid trying to force your friend. Paul continues his appeal in verse 11. He says of Onesimus, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. Here's a word play. The name Onesimus, by the way, means profitable. And Paul is saying that Philemon's slave had not been very Onesimus or profitable. He'd been more a headache than a help, but now Jesus has made him a true Onesimus. Now he is profitable. You know, Jesus takes unprofitable people and he makes them spiritually productive and fruitful and profitable. He did so with Onesimus. Verse 12, Paul says, I am now sending him back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. Paul loved Onesimus. Philemon's slave was now his friend. And Paul would have loved for Onesimus to stay in Rome and assist him in his ministry. But it was right to send him home. Onesimus had a responsibility, a first responsibility to Philemon. And part of repentance is fulfilling your obligations. It is. If Onesimus were to help Paul, it would need to be Philemon's choice. Once Onesimus returns to Colossae and makes things right with his master, then if Philemon wants him to, he can return and he can assist Paul. I think it's interesting to note Paul's concern that any help he received be voluntary, not out of compulsion. And this should be true of all our gifts to God. 
2 Corinthians 9 verse 7 reads, So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. God wants us to serve Him. God wants us to give to Him from our hearts. Again, not because we have to, but because we want to. God loves a cheerful giver. Whatever we do, whatever we give to God, it needs to be without a grudge. Hey, when we give begrudgingly to God, it's a tainted sacrifice. And you learn from the Old Testament what God thinks about tainted sacrifices. Whenever God's people gave less than their best, you know, God was upset. God was offended. When you offer a sacrifice to God, He expects the pick of the litter, the first fruits of the flock. The best gifts are always prompted by love. Well, Paul continues, verse 15. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Philemon should see the hand of God in this turn of events and see his slave Onesimus in a new light, no longer a slave, but now a beloved brother in the Lord. Now, it's interesting that the church in the New Testament makes no attempt to ever abolish the institution of slavery. It's not that they didn't think it was wrong. They did. But they never adopted a political agenda. They never became social activists. They never attacked the institution of slavery, at least not directly. They didn't campaign for governmental change. Certainly, most examples of Roman slavery were horrendous, and they needed to come to an end. Slavery was unbiblical and anti-Christian, no doubt about it. But you never see Paul and the apostles out picketing the slave markets. 1 Corinthians 7 instructs new believers who were slaves to remain loyal slaves unless they're set free. You know, in modern times, we seem to think that everything can be cured through legislative means. We've assumed that social change happens when old laws are stricken and they're replaced by new laws. But let's admit, though there's no longer slavery in this country, how are we doing with racism? I mean, no set of laws can alter the human heart. This is what the early Christians realized. Problems like slavery and abortion and poverty are really just symptoms of deeper spiritual issues. If sin is only dealt with on a social level, the problem isn't really solved. It has to be dealt with on a spiritual level, in the heart of the individual. And rather than rely on a political process or a social protest, Paul knew that the best way to change people's hearts was the preaching of the gospel. It was a reliance on the Spirit of God to change that man from the inside out. Of course, Paul didn't live in a democratic society, you might say. But hey, Paul didn't even try to abolish slavery in the church. Instead, he relied on love. Paul knew that legislative power is like a wet noodle next to the power of love. Rather than make a law, rather than require Philemon to accept Onesimus, he appealed to love. This man is now a beloved brother. How are you going to treat him? As I said earlier, slavery has long been abolished on the books, and yet humans still oppress other humans. 
bigotry and exploitation and cruelty still abound. People who are supposedly free still get exploited and controlled and manipulated by people who are smarter or who are more powerful and lack love. You see, the problem will always be with us until the root of sin is uprooted from the heart of man. But there's a deeper lesson in this wonderful story. There's a symbolic, spiritual message in Paul's plea to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. For the, just as Paul interceded for Onesimus, Jesus intercedes for us. Did you know we're all runaway slaves? Unprofitable to God? In Martin Luther's commentary on this book of Philemon, he writes, All of us are Onesimuses. We departed for a while, but only to be received back forever. And no longer just as slaves, but more. As brothers with our Lord, we're now joint heirs with Christ. Certainly we're slaves or servants to Jesus. But Galatians 4 tells us that we're more than just slaves to God. We're sons. Our place is not only at the master's feet, it's around his table. We're his kids. And he wants us to enjoy his presence and gobble up his provisions. I love how Paul intercedes on behalf of Onesimus. In verse 17, he tells Philemon, If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. The Greek sense of it is to receive him into your family circle. Paul wants Philemon to treat Onesimus as part of his own family. And then verse 18, But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. Paul will pay for any damages. I mean, whatever Onesimus owed Philemon... Out of debt or lost revenue, Paul would pay out of his own wallet. Paul loved his friend enough to put his money where his mouth was. That's another sign of real friendship. He's willing to sacrifice a few bucks for a brother. Notice though, what Paul did for Onesimus is a picture of what Christ has done for you and me. You see, man has two problems. First, we can't live up to God's standards. And second... We can't pay our own debt of sin. We've struck out on both accounts. On the asset side of life, we lack enough merit to gain God's favor. On the liability side of life, we owe far too much to think we could ever pay it off. But Christ, the accountant of grace, has the answer. Notice in verse 17, He tinkers with the asset side of the books. He adds wealth and righteousness and stature to your account. Just as Philemon is encouraged to accept Onesimus as he would Paul, the Father God in heaven promises to receive us just as he receives his own son Jesus. Did you know that in Christ when I approach God, I am assured of his acceptance because he promises to treat me just as he treats Jesus? Did you know that? That I'm clothed with Christ's righteousness? That I've been received into the family circle? This is why I can approach boldly to God's throne of grace. He's tinkered with the asset side. He has bestowed the merits of Christ to my account. And in verse 18, Jesus works on the liability side. For just as Paul agreed to cover Onesimus' debts, Jesus promises to cover and abolish our spiritual debts. 
On the cross, Jesus placed our sin on his shoulders. He took over our payments and he cleared our debts off the books. You remember Jesus' last words on the cross were, It is finished. In the original language, that phrase reads, Te telestai. And if you had been living in the first century, you would have recognized that phrase, for it was an accounting term. It was seen commonly in the ledgers of Jerusalem businesses. It literally meant paid in full. That's what Jesus did on the cross. To your debt of sin, He's now marked it out. He's placed over it, paid in full. When Jesus died on Calvary, all that needed to be done was done for you and I to be saved. This story paints a beautiful picture of the salvation that our Lord offers us. And then verse 19. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. Paul's signature at the bottom of the letter doubled as a promissory note. He puts the transaction in writing. He wants his promise to Philemon to be legal. This is is why Jesus came under the law. This is why he bothered to go to the cross and pay our penalty. This is why our debt couldn't just be glossed over. It all had to be done legally in the court of God. Sin had to be blotted out. Righteousness had to be imputed according to the proper divine legalities. Why? Because God does things by the book. And likewise, here Paul's signature is on Onesimus' salvation just as God's signature is on ours. And then Paul adds, I will repay, not to mention to you, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. <laughs> Which just proves that Paul is still human. And in verse 19, he basically contradicts everything he's just taught us. He finally throws his weight around. He says, just in case love doesn't prompt you, Philemon, to take the right course of action, let me just remind you, old buddy, that I have some serious clout. And you need to do this for my sake. In essence, Paul is saying, remember, Philemon, you would be going to hell if it wasn't for me. Apparently, Philemon owed his salvation to the ministry and to the preaching of the Apostle Paul. And Paul is reminding his former convert that he owes him one. You know, we probably ought to excuse Paul for this one example of heavy-handedness. All in all, Paul handles what really was a delicate situation with tender, loving care. I've heard it said, a friend is someone who can step on your toes without messing up your shine. That characterized the friendship that Paul had with Philemon. Verse 20, Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. I trust you, Philemon, to do the right. In fact, you'll even do better than the right thing. You'll do more than I ask. You know, people often live up to what's expected, don't they? And friends expect the best out of each other. Paul expects Philemon to do the right thing. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 7 tells us that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. 
Love believes all things, and real love will believe in its friends. We all need someone who believes in us and inspires us to do our best. It's been said, a friend is someone who thinks you're a good egg, even though you're slightly cracked. (laughs) Verse 22. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Paul's planning a visit to Colossae, and guess what? He invites himself to stay at Philemon's house. Aphia can now add a house guest to her already busy life. Verse 23 of Paphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And with these few personal greetings, Paul closes his letter to Philemon. But let me challenge you with some closing thoughts tonight. What kind of a friend are you? Are you a faithful friend? Are you a Kemosabe in Christ? Or does real friendship sound, like too, sound too much like hard work for you? I hope we realize that when God called us to be His kids, though we may not have known it at the time, He was also calling us to be brothers and sisters. And I have no doubt that in light of eternity, a brother is certainly worth the bother. Let's cultivate good friendships. Let's be deliberate and considerate and make our fellowship the very best that it can be.